Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. Today, I'm going to be telling you the story of a case that's haunted, perplexed, and frustrated me ever since I first heard about it, and it only continues to baffle me every time I revisit it. This is one of those cases where it feels like no matter how well you think you know it, no matter how many twists and turns and theories you're familiar with about its details, there's still always something new you learn, which turns so much of what you thought you knew on its head. This is a story that, in my mind, is so complex and nuanced and so deserving of a truly proper telling, I've decided I need to tell it to you in two parts. So today, I'm telling you the first part of the story behind the disappearance of Maura Murray. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. was 21 years old at the time of her disappearance, and she was studying to become a nurse at University of Massachusetts Amherst. She was one of five children from a traditional Irish Catholic New England family, and she had close-knit relationships between all of her siblings. Maura's parents did divorce when she was young, so after that, she primarily lived with her mother. Despite her living situation, she had an incredibly close relationship with her father, Fred due to their shared love of the outdoors, hiking, and running. Fred was known to be a massive supporter of Maura's running, and he served as a coach of sorts to her growing up. She was a bona fide track star at her high school, and her success on the track led her to accepting a scholarship at West Point, following, as it would so be, in the footsteps of her older sister, Julie, who was also a runner at West Point. She met her boyfriend, Billy Roush, at West Point, had been welcomed onto the track team with open arms by her older sister and the other teammates. And in all events, she seemed to be doing pretty well and looking towards a bright future. That trajectory didn't last long, though, because Maura only stayed at West Point for three semesters. In her sophomore year, she was asked to leave as opposed to being out and out expelled because she stole a lip gloss from a Fort Knox commissary while down in Tennessee on a field training expedition. I'm going to sidebar here because I want to share how this almost elective seeming choice to leave as opposed to being expelled came about since honestly I was interested in how the details shook out on this. The Commandant, who is basically the HBIC at West Point, ordered an honor investigative hearing. This is a type of glorified military version of a classic honor board hearing that you'd see at most colleges. However, where this order differs is that where an honor board hearing at civilian schools is the first step of getting things in motion, having this type of meeting called at West Point was an indicator that they had enough information or even proof to show Maura was guilty of what she was being charged with, aka She was going to get her ass thrown out if she got taken to trial in front of the cadet advisory board. So, Maura did the logical thing, and she pled guilty. 
basically this scenario is similar to someone taking a plea to get a lesser sentence in a criminal criminal case. However, the honor board gave their, quote, recommendation, aka their sentencing, basically, and they came down with the suggestion that she should be, quote, separated from the Corps of Cadets. Like I said before, girlfriend was gonna get her ass thrown out. Maura played things strategically, though. Instead of being expelled, she withdrew willingly from West Point, and she left West Point on January 2nd, 2002, to become a nursing student at UMass Amherst. All of that history now said, let me take you back and tell you about the events prior to Maura's disappearance. And in doing so, let's go back to a land before time. 2003 and 2004. <laughs> Maura at the time had a lot going on, even once she left her checkered past at West Point behind her. In November 2003, Maura was charged and found guilty of the improper use of a credit card under $250. This was a misdemeanor crime. Apparently, Maura wrote down the credit card number for one of her doormates' cards from a receipt that she'd found in the garbage, which she then proceeded to use multiple times to order pizza. After the fraud was reported, local police were able to track down the orders and they set up a sort of mini sting. During this live PD UMass Amherst episode, Maura was both obviously and easily found, and she almost immediately copped to using the stolen credit card when an undercover detective who was posing as a delivery boy caught her as he was delivering one of her pizzas. The charges were dismissed just a few weeks later in December on the stipulation that Maura had to stay out of trouble for just 90 days. Translated, she basically got a three-month probation. On top of the probation that she was already working with, Maura had racked up a reckless driving ticket in New Hampshire sometime in the spring of 2003. This ticket was to the tune of going 99 miles an hour, which she failed to appear in court to address. This led to her license being suspended, but allegedly she didn't even know this, probably because she never showed up to court. On a personal level, Maura had some shit going on too. The word on the street at the time was that Maura and her West Point boyfriend, Billy Roush, were engaged to be engaged. But there is a lot of speculation about how healthy their relationship actually was. There have been numerous reports over the years that Billy was allegedly controlling and emotionally abusive towards Maura, as well as rumors that Maura was actually involved with the assistant coach of her track team, Hussein Baghdadi. Allegedly, Hussein and Maura were involved during the spring of spring and summer of 2003, but Maura broke things off in the fall of 2003 to refocus on her relationship with Billy. It was stated that Baghdadi made some interesting comments about Maura when he was later interviewed by police. One of these comments Baghdadi shared was that Maura had allegedly told him at one point that she wanted to, quote, just disappear. From the outside looking in, it's not hard to imagine the stress Maura was under. From her legal troubles, her possible relationship woes, and the general demand of a college athlete pursuing an equally demanding degree like nursing, Maura seemed to be having a rough go of things, just as we enter the weekend of February 6th, 2004. 
On Friday, February 6th, Maura was ending the school week and she was starting up what would be a pretty fun weekend since her dad was actually visiting campus. Before this, though, Maura had to finish her shift at her on-campus security job. It's here I also want to quickly say that to understand the events leading up to Maura's disappearance, we need to rely on a lot of details, and those details primarily come in the form of timestamps. In telling you the story of this weekend, that means I am going to be sharing a lot of timestamps. So forgive me if this story takes on a really timeline-like manner of storytelling. So we begin at 7 p.m. when Maura reported to work at the UMass Amherst dorm she was working the front desk of. She was scheduled to work until around 1.45 a.m. Also, it should be noted that Maura was not supposed to be using her personal phone at work, but it's known from her cell phone records that she frequently did use her phone while on duty. And obviously did she did because let's just see how this all plays out. At 7.17 p.m., Maura calls her boyfriend, Billy, who is stationed out at Fort Sill in Oklahoma. A little Friday night chit-chat, if you will, though what in the world someone does for fun on a Friday night at a military base in Oklahoma is beyond me. In any regard, this call lasted about 20 minutes. A few hours later, at 9.56 p.m., Maura called Billy again. This call lasted six minutes. And honestly... I would love to know what the six-minute call after being on the phone just a few hours beforehand was about, but that's something that's never been disclosed to the public. At 10.10 p.m., Maura gets a call from her older sister, Kathleen. The call lasted 28 minutes. For actual years, Kathleen claimed that this phone call was just some sisterly catching up, gossiping, and comprised of just this and that, in her words. However, That ended up not being the case. In the 2017 Oxygen documentary about Maura's disappearance, Kathleen finally admitted that this phone call involved herself, a recovering alcoholic, telling Maura that she had been discharged from a rehab facility earlier in the evening, and she stopped with her fiancé at a liquor store on the way home. I'll leave this at that right now, but we'll get back to this. Sometime after midnight, police respond to an accident just off campus where a student named Patrick Bossi was injured in a hit and run. What does this have to do with Mara, you may be asking? <laughs> just wait and see. At 12.07 a.m., Mara calls Billy again, and this conversation lasts six minutes again. I really don't understand what all of this incessant calling between the two of them is about, especially because given it's the early aughts, so like I can only imagine that led to some pretty hefty phone bills. Sometime around 1 a.m. and 1.30 a.m., word gets to Maura's supervisor that she is having a full-on meltdown at her workstation. Karen, the supervisor, and I am not kidding, that was her name, (laughs) claims that when she went to go check on Maura that she was, quote, catatonic, completely zoned out, no reaction at all. She was unresponsive. Apparently, so much to the point, Maura wasn't even doing her job of checking students in. Students were just willy-nilly waltzing around and entering the building without having their IDs checked. As is known now, a little bit famously if you're familiar with the case, when Maura was asked what was wrong, all she could say was, quote, my sister, my sister. It's now believed that Maura was referring to Kathleen 
And since Kathleen finally copped to what their conversation was about, we can safely assume Maura was distraught about her sister's relapse after leaving rehab that night. However, I have, to the utter shock of no one, hashtag questions already. Why was Maura freaking out almost three hours later after the phone call? One imagines she would be in panic or a meltdown mode almost immediately after hearing such news from her sister. I just find it really strange that she started having her breakdown so long after the call. But in any regard, Karen initially tried to get Maura to go to the campus counseling center and Maura refused. She actually lied to Karen saying that her roommate was in the dorm room to keep her company. Plot twist, Maura lived in a single. She didn't have a roommate. I understand lying to somebody to leave you alone when you just want to be in your feels telling a little white lie, but this is so weird. It definitely gives credence to the belief that Maura had a bit of an issue with lying and deception, which again, we'll get to it later on. At 3.40 a.m., Maura called Domino's for pizza delivery, which honestly, truly, good for you, girlfriend. You deserve some za after the night that you've had. I just hope you used her own credit card. We now arrive to Saturday, February 7th. A little less is known explicitly about what happened during this day, but there are a few strange occurrences that we do know about. As planned, Fred Murray came up to Amherst. He withdrew $4,000 from a multitude of ATMs and claims that he and Morris spent the afternoon car shopping to replace her 96 Saturn. However, there are no dealerships that have any record of the father-daughter duo coming to look at cars. Admittedly, maybe, sure, they looked at cars from Craigslist or something, but regardless, there are no reports of anyone coming forward after all these years to corroborate Fred's claims. Also a little strangely, many of Maura's friends claim that her car was in fine condition and certainly didn't need to be replaced. It was fine enough to make it the 136-mile drive she would take the next few days. However, we all know, or are about to know, that Fred completely disputes the idea her car was fine. He claims it was in such bad condition it needed a rag in the tailpipe. And full disclosure, I am in no manner a car person, so personally, I have to ask, what good does putting a rag in the tailpipe do? Like, What standard of car health does this aim to set? (laughs) Another strange thing about all of this business with Maura's car, Fred's home was in the process of being foreclosed on. So why in the financial sense fuck would he pull $4,000 in cash to replace Maura's car when his own home was being foreclosed on? I understand helping your kids and being a good dad like that, But this just seems strange that he pulled that much cash when he obviously seemed to need it and when there were other viable options to utilize in the search for a new car for Mora. This is where we're circling back to the hit and run of the night before. So, like I said, reminder, the night before, police responded to an accident scene where a fellow UMass student, Patrick Vasi, was hit by a car as he was crossing the street near campus less than a mile from where Mora was working. In the course of the accident, he was injured badly enough that he was in a coma, and the driver who hit him never stopped and has never been identified. 
little shifty, a little weird, wouldn't you say? Things take a turn for the weirder because Vasi's mother even went so far as to allege that an investigation into the accident never even took place. This leads us to some good old-fashioned speculation. Some people suggest that it was Mora who hit Vasi with her car, and that this is what led to her emotional meltdown an hour later. Because, lest we forget, she spoke with her sister Kathleen just after 10 p.m., the hit and run took place just after midnight, and it was then, around 1 a.m., that Mora has her catatonic yet also sobbing meltdown. If Mora really had been involved in the accident, the timeline does admittedly make a modicum of sense for explaining the timing of her meltdown. However, all that said, I have to fold up and put away my tinfoil hat on this one because I don't think she was involved at all. Overall, it strikes me as being unlikely because, again, lest we not fucking forget, Billy was blowing up Mora's spot and called her for a third time that night, just after midnight. We have the phone records to prove it, so how could she have been hitting a human being with a car if she was on the phone with Billy? Are we to believe Billy knew what she had done and has kept quiet about it all these years? Logistically speaking as well, she also would have had to leave her post at her security desk, not been noticed to be missing, and she would have had to hit Vasi with a car that wasn't her own black Saturn. Paint chips and residue were found on Vasi's clothes, and they didn't match Mora's car. So, alas, this theory gets debunked fairly quickly, but I think it's something that's still interesting enough to bring up anyway. All of this to say, though, I I do think there was a cover-up of sorts happening, especially with the $4,000, and I don't think it was to buy more a new car in order to divert attention away from her as a possible hit-and-run suspect. I think Mora was the one who took the $4,000 out, not Fred. Mora has a history of lying and stealing, and at this point in time, she could have already been working on her plan to abscond from the life that she knew. As we'll come to see, Fred covers for Mora a lot, both over the years and in the days after her disappearance. This is done mostly in an effort to protect her reputation in the media, like any loving father would do. But we also see the possibility of how this can be enabling for Mora's bad and impulsive behaviors. That said, let's get back to our timeline. That night, and a reminder, it's Saturday, February 7th, Mora and her friend Kate had dinner with Fred at a local brewery. Afterwards, Fred drove the girls to a liquor store so they could claim some alcohol for a dorm party they were heading to. Interesting sidebar. This friend Kate would later tell police that Mora and Fred didn't speak at all about any of the car shopping they allegedly did that day. Which, you know, a little curious to me. After hitting the liquor store... Mora dropped Fred at the Quality Inn he was staying at and then drove to campus herself in his car. You guess it. Hashtag questions. <laughs> Why didn't Mora take her own car to the party? Why take Fred's own car, which was actually pretty new? The party was on campus and actually in walking distance from her own dorm. So, like, why even drive at all? Also, why didn't Mora and Fred discuss the cars they allegedly checked out earlier in the day while at dinner. Let's keep going. <laughs> the questions just only build up from here. 
At 10.30ish, Mora attended the dorm party and she allegedly left around 2.30. There is a lot of speculation about what happened at this party if you're very deeply in the Mora Murray trenches like me, myself, and I. I will say, calling this a party is a bit of a stretch. There were only five people there milling around, drinking shitty college booze. At this party in particular, they were drinking sky blue malt mixed with wine, which feels like the true crime out of everything to me here. (laughs) Those five people at the party were Maura, her friend Kate, their other friend Sarah, whose room they were in, Sarah's unnamed male cousin, and this cousin's unnamed male friend. At around 2.30 a.m., Kate allegedly left with the cousin's friend. Maura told everyone that she was going back to her own dorm to go to sleep, but instead, she got back into Fred's car and drove to his hotel. It has been reported that Maura allegedly either hooked up with Sarah's cousin or they left the dorm room together, but this is not confirmed. Rampant speculation includes everything from Nothing out of the ordinary happened at this party, too. It was a going away party for Mora. To even know it was actually a wild sex party. To even Mora was sexually assaulted at this party and every other theory in between. If something happened to her, it would kind of explain the fact that though she left the party at 2.30, her next movements weren't noted until 3.30. The people who were at this little dorm room shinding, specifically Kate and Sarah, are also two people I think that need to be looked further into. Over the years, they've proven to be very secretive, and after only giving one or two police interviews, they actually refuse to divulge more of what happened at the party in the past. Sarah's claims, Sarah claims she was passed out by the time Maura left, and Kate simply claims that she doesn't remember much of the party, which obviously spikes some red flags in my mind and definitely raises my suspicion. How awfully convenient that would be. You passed out or you simply don't remember anything out of the ordinary or bad happening to your friend who later disappeared just a few days later? Red flags abound, if you ask me. We now arrive at our 3.30 a.m. timestamp. Like I said, Maura left the party at 2.30 and, sidebar, don't be a fucking idiot and drink and drive. She left at 2.30. I I had to go on a little soapbox there because this is such a problem in this case. But, like I said, Maura leaves at 2.30 and decides to go back to Fred's motel. En route, she hits a guardrail on the highway and effectively totals Fred's brand new car. Homegirl racked up $8,000 of damage to the car, and the insurance company even effectively said that it was just simply totaled. No charges or citations were filed by the cop who showed up, though, and there's no record of a field sobriety test being conducted, which, like, what? (laughs) I think it's safe to say that we can all assume Maura was drunk at the time of the accident, She was leaving the party where she had drinking sky malt mixed with wine, which I am still not over. She had drinks at the brewery with her dad, and she does have her own history of heavy drinking that was pretty well known. Girlfriend 1000% should have been given a test, and if she had been, maybe we wouldn't be here today telling the story. 
Regardless of why she wasn't administered a sobriety test, Maura was driven to the Quality Inn, delivered safely, if a bit shaken up, to Fred, and she stayed the night at her dad's room. Strangely, though, there's a call from Fred's phone to Billy at 4.50 a.m., but the conversation and who actually called him haven't ever been shared publicly. It's here. I'd like to uh, divert into another hashtag question segment. <laughs> Why in the world did Maura drive back to Fred's hotel? Her dorm was literal steps from the party at Sarah's that she had been at. What was on Maura's mind that night? Was she thinking about Kathleen and her meltdown from Friday night? Did Maura cheat on Billy with one of the unnamed guys at the party and she was having another meltdown? Was Maura assaulted by someone on campus before, during, or after the party, and that's why she left to go to the motel? Why are all five people who are at this gathering so damn tight-lipped even years later? And finally, why did they drink sky blue malt mixed with wine? I just don't understand it. That said, we now arrive to Sunday, February 8th. There's not much to say about the rest of Sunday because after someone, we still don't know who, called Bill at 5 a.m.-ish, our story picks up around 11 a.m. when Fred drops Maura back at campus with the car he rented following her accident. Sometime during the day on Sunday, Fred finds out that his insurance will completely cover the cost of the car's damage. And thank God for that, because honestly, I can't believe the guilt Maura must have been feeling about the accident. Fred had to leave to go to a work obligation in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is from where he calls Maura later that night at 11.26 p.m. to tell her the news and to remind her to pick up the accident claim forms from the local DMV the next day. They agreed to catch up again on Monday night around 8 p.m. so Fred could help Maura fill out the forms over the phone. After hanging up with Fred just after 11.30, we find ourselves on Monday, February 9th. At 12 a.m., Maura gets off the phone with Fred and begins searching for directions to three different towns, the Berkshires, Lancaster, Vermont, and Burlington, Vermont. You, uh, you going somewhere, girlfriend? After these searches, it can be assumed, and Christ God, I hope she did, that Maura went to bed after the absolutely draining and stressful turn this weekend had taken. Her next documented movements that we have begin later that afternoon. At 12.55 p.m., Maura picks up where she left off, searching for places to go up north. Maura calls a vacation resort in North Conway, New Hampshire first. Three minutes later, Maura's off the phone and onto another search. We're not told why, but the owner of this condo didn't rent to her. At 1 p.m., Maura takes a quick break from searching to email Billy. The message states, quote, I got your messages, but honestly, I didn't feel like talking much of anyone. I promised a call today, though. Love you, said. Quick question. Messages? Messi messages. <laughs> Let it be known that Billy called Maura a shitload of times the day before and on the day of her disappearance. Like I said, we are here on Sunday, February 8th, which is the day before she disappears. Here's the timeline of Bill's calls to Maura on that day. 2.49 p.m. Bill makes a two-minute call to Maura, which I presume was him leaving Maura a message as her phone was off at the time. 2.50 p.m. One minute later, 
He calls the number associated with Mora's dorm when he can't get a hold of her cell. 4.47 p.m. He calls Mora's cell. Again. 5.45 p.m. He makes another call to Mora's cell, which again goes unanswered. Immediately following the 5.45 call, he calls Mora's dorm room again. And to this, I say, homeboy, what is with the calls? <laughs> to me, it seems clear that Mora was dodging him. And that theory is supported by the email that she sends at 1 p.m. on Monday. The question here, though, hashtag question, why? What had transpired that made Mora go radio silent on Billy? Maybe she was drained from the events of Sunday night and just shut down as a means of coping? Something was still bothering her from the car accident? Honestly, who's truly to say? But let's just keep all of this in mind as we continue on. Back to Monday, which conveniently was actually a snow day. Amherst canceled their classes, which gave more of the opportunity she later took to leave campus. Still right around 1 p.m., Maura called a couple by the last name of Salomon to ask about renting their Bartlett, New Hampshire condo located at the Seasons at Adatash Resort. The Murray family had frequently stayed at this resort when they were growing up, so Maura gives them a call to inquire about staying there. The call lasts three minutes, and again, she doesn't rent the condo with this couple either. At 1.05 p.m., Maura calls 1-800-GO-STOW, a generic number to get information about booking hotels in the Stowe, Vermont area. The call lasted around five minutes. She did not rent a room yet again. I admittedly find it a little strange that she would have been on the phone for five minutes in this case because the phone systems were later discovered to be operating on an automated recording at the time that Maura called. So unless she was going through some automated prompting, why was she on the phone for those five minutes? At 1.13 p.m., Maura called another student in her nursing program, but she ended up leaving a voicemail. Allegedly, the message that she left was that she would not be needing a ride to their clinicals for the rest of the week, and that the nursing jacket that she borrowed previously had been returned in case this friend needed it, quote, while I am gone. At 1.24 p.m., the lies start to pile up. Morris sends an email to the nursing school supervisor, claiming that she was going to be out of town for the week because there was a death in her family that, shocker, actually had not occurred. This gave Mora both a head start to get the hell out of Dodge and it seems like a viable way to excuse her absence from classes. But like, Jesus, God, what an ominous way to kickstart this whole thing that did wind up so spooky eventually. At 2.18 p.m., this is when a kind of interesting thing happens. Maura calls Billy back, finally, but <laughs> she leaves him a voicemail because he didn't pick up the phone. Because at the time, he was on the phone with Maura's friend Kate who we discussed earlier. Though Mora promises that they will talk later, I think this was a lie and part of a bit of a ruse. I have the mind to think that Mora made this call to Billy while she was standing right next to Kate, while she, Kate, was on the phone with Billy. I think it's safe to say that Mora was purposely dodging Billy for whatever reason, we'll get to later, and she finagled this situation so she could be seen as a good girlfriend by calling him back and placating him with promises to talk later 
but I think she used this opportunity to not have to speak with him directly since he was on the phone with Kate, presumably trying to get a hold of Mora. Honestly, and like even trying to relay this, I feel like the meme of the guy in front of his conspiracy cork board trying to explain all of this. So <laughs> I hope you're still with me here. Just after Mora's 2.18 call, at 2.21 p.m., Billy calls Mora. At 2.22 p.m., he calls Mora again. At 2.24 p.m., third time is the charm, except not because Mora still doesn't pick up the call when Billy calls her. At 3 p.m., Mora packs up her dorm room, gets together things to take with her, and leaves campus for the last time in her little black sedan. As far as we know, she's heading north to the White Mountains in New Hampshire. And here I'd like to say, let's discuss the dorm room of it all. When Morris' room was later searched by police, and campus police as well, it was a sight that they weren't really prepared for. All of her remaining belongings were packed in moving boxes, and any art or pictures that she had had on her walls were taken down. The place honestly looked like she had stripped it down to its original state what you might do if you were moving out for the semester, for example. I personally don't subscribe to the idea that this was all just stuff she hadn't unpacked after returning from Christmas break. Because who in the world would let stuff sit unpacked in boxes in an already cramped dorm room for a little over a month? UMass students got back from break on January 10th, so we're saying that the noted neat freak, Mora, just lived out of boxes for a month? I'm, I'm not buying that. Furthermore, truly until this weekend, there hadn't been reason to assume War was going to take a leave of absence or leave school, which is why it seems most reasonable to assume that she had actually packed her shit during the last 36 hours. And most intriguingly, though, on top of all these boxes, there was a printed out email that she had left addressed to Billy, quote, indicating trouble in their relationship. The contents of this printed out email, and don't get it twisted, this isn't the same email Mora sent earlier in the day about not wanting to talk to anyone. This email and what all it said has never been made public. Allegedly, though, the email made reference to the idea that Billy had cheated on Mora. And, you know, this would kind of be the twist of all twists since it's been posited throughout the Mora Murray case world that she had cheated on him with her track coach and the admittedly shaky theory she might have hooked up with someone on campus. But all of this is to say, I think the email contents are need-to-know information. Whatever was said in this email would give massive credence to certain theories postulating about why Mora left questions that really might help bring long overdue answers to this case. That said, at 3.30 p.m., our next movement of more is noted. She pops into an ATM and withdraws $280, which is at that point basically everything in her account. She only left $16 in the account, which I assume was so the bank wouldn't close it or alert her parents that she had essentially drained the account if they had access to it as so many college parents do. Immediately after the ATM, Mora hits the liquor store, once again making incredibly questionable decisions about her alcohol preferences. She stocks up and spends forty dollars on a bottle of Bailey's, a bottle of Kahlua, vodka, and a box of Franzia. 
my liver just hurts like reading that. <laughs> At 3.43 p.m. Fran, oh, Franzia, I can't. 3.43 p.m., Mora leaves the liquor store. And somewhere at some point this afternoon, Mora does actually pick up the accident report from the DMV. We don't actually know when she did this, but it's now postulated since 2017 that this might have been a stop that she made along the way up to New Hampshire. At 4.37 p.m., Mora calls the number for her voicemail to see if there's anything in its contents. At 5 p.m., there's a hit from a nearby cell tower located to Mora's phone. The way that this ping was formulated, it indicated that somebody called her, but this person called her somewhere within 20 miles of Londonderry, New Hampshire. This is the last known use of her phone, a phone which we still have not found to this day. And now, as the kids say, shit's about to go down. At 7.26 p.m., someone who was only referred to in police documents as Witness A called in to report seeing police SUV number 001 parked, quote, nose to nose with what would later be identified as Morris car, just as Witness A drove past. I will just leave this little tidbit right here, right now, because we will get to it. <laughs> At 7.27 p.m., Faith Westerman, who is a resident of Woodsville, New Hampshire, phones into the local sheriff's department. There's been an accident just outside her house, which is on Route 112. After hearing a loud thump outside the house, she looked out her window and she could see a car up against a snowbank along aforementioned Route 112, which is also known as Wild and Moonsock Road. It's a notoriously twisty road, which led her to believe that there had been some sort of accident with the car. During her call, and according to police records, she reported that she saw a man smoking a cigarette in the car. However, Faith would later recant this statement and said that she couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman in the car, and that it's possible that the red light she saw, which she assumed was the lit end of a cigarette, was actually the light from a cell phone. However, however, Mora was known for being incredibly anti-smoking, and obviously she didn't smoke herself because of that, so if Faith didn't see a man with a cigarette, had she seen more looking at her cell phone? Around the same time, a second set of neighbors, the Marats, reported seeing the same accident from their home across the street. A car flashing their hazards at an angle that suggested it had swerved off the road. And as they watched, a third neighbor actually entered the scene. At 7.33 p.m., Butch Atwood, a local bus driver and a big, lumbering, lumberjack type of dude, arrives on the scene in his school bus. The spot where Mora and her car had skidded out was just about 100 yards next to his home, and Butch at the time was returning home from dropping off local school kids who had been returning after a skiing field trip. Butch actually spoke with Mora for a few minutes. He later said that Moore remained on the driver's side of her car, about 15 to 20 feet away, and stayed there during their entire conversation. Like I said, Butch was a big dude. He was about 350 pounds, and his own wife said that she, quote, might be afraid if I saw Butch coming upon her in the dark after being shaken up by an accident. Butch asked Moore if she wanted him to call the police, but Moore said no. She claimed that she had actually already called AAA and that they were on the way. Big dude Butch may be, he was also nobody's fool. 
He was a local and he knew it would be impossible for Mora to have made the call due to the lack of cell service in the thickly wooded area. So why the lie? It's in this moment, I think we get a really good glimpse of Mora's mindset. Her main goal, even after crashing her car, and should be noted, this is her second car accident in as many days. But her main goal is to avoid the police. And honestly, given the events of the days prior, who can blame her? Let's recap all of the reasons Mora might be trying to avoid the police. What comes to mind is the biggest reason that Mora probably wanted to avoid the police that night was that she's already had her own previous trouble with the law. The credit card fraud, her probation, her unaccounted for reckless driving charge, the likelihood that her license had been suspended. And on top of that, the whole, I just told my dad's car less than 48 hours ago. She was skipping school. And on top, on top of all that, she was allegedly drinking and driving throughout the car ride. Butch noted in his statement to police that he could tell Mora was intoxicated. And I'm pretty sure Mora would have wanted to avoid interacting with officers of the law after being behind the wheel with a bottle of Coke that allegedly contained red wine. She was in no mood to call old dad Fred from a jail cell in New Hampshire, asking for both bail money and a ride home. All that said, Butch offered to let Mora wait in his house until AAA arrived. Not only had he noticed that she was tipsy and a little drunk, he could see that she was shivering and probably out of her mind scared, though she did seem unharmed in his eyes. But again, Mora declined and claimed that she wanted to wait with her car. His parting words to Mora was the advice to turn her lights on so that no one coming around the twisty-turvy bend would accidentally hit her, and he left driving 100 yards to his home. After Butch left, Faith Westerman, the first neighbor to call 911 to report the accident, noticed the lights had turned on inside the car, and there was, quote, a flurry of activity at the back of the car, including someone standing at the trunk. At 7.43 p.m., after backing his bus into the driveway, which is something that he normally didn't do, but later claimed he did so to keep his eye on the scene and Mora, Butch calls the police from the porch of his home. While he was on the phone, he saw several cars pass by on the road, but from his vantage point on the porch, he actually did not see Mora. At 7.46 p.m., the first Haverhill police officer, Sergeant Cecil Smith, arrived on the scene. Remember that witness A from 726? Interesting, you should in fact remember. I am so proud that you're paying attention. <laughs> this particular witness made her claim that she saw SUV 001 already on the scene, nose to nose, as you'll remember, 20 fucking minutes earlier, which completely contradicts the official police log that would later come to light. Now, why in the world does this matter? Because Sergeant Cecil Smith was driving police SUV 001 that night. Don't worry. We'll dive deeper into this detail tomorrow. So it's 746. And at this point, Sergeant Smith finds a multitude of things on the scene. As followed, they are, first let's go over the contents of Moore's car. Both airbags had been deployed and like, damn, Moore, how fast were you going? Also, that raises the question, that should cause some nasty injuries getting bopped in the face with an airbag, wouldn't you think? 
also noted, the driver's side of the windshield was cracked from the inside. Again, I just want to note that Butch was about 20 feet away from Moore when he spoke with her, and it was dark, and he was also 60 years old, so he might not have gotten an accurate look at her and how injured she may have been, because this inside windshield crack definitely seems to suggest that Mora hit her head on it. After crime scene investigators got into the car, they noted that the car had crashed so hard into the snowbank, the radiator had been physically pushed into the fan, and this made the car actually entirely inoperable. And like, good God, Moore, you really need to go back to driver's ed because this is the second car in just as many days that you've totaled. Cecil Smith also noticed that stupid rag stuffed in the tailpipe, and he was just as confused by its appearance as anyone else. Again, I have to ask, what good did this really do? Fred later claimed that he was the one who told Moore to use this trick as a way to avoid getting pulled over because her car was letting off excess fumes, but the whole thing is just so strange to me. Another thing that Smith noticed in the car, red wine stains were found both inside and outside the car. Let's take a closer look at the items that were found inside the car. There was an empty beer bottle and a damaged box of red wine, Franzia, which had been previously opened. A AAA card issued to Mora. Blank accident report forms that were postulating Mora got on her way up north. Birth control pills. Black leather gloves. CDs, because lest we forget, it is the early aughts. College textbooks. A diamond necklace from Billy. There was a Diet Coke bottle allegedly containing the red wine. Her favorite stuffed animal, a monkey that Fred had given her, and that little detail just always breaks my heart. There were two sets of driving directions printed from MapQuest. One set was for Burlington, Vermont, and the other for Stowe. There were sleeping pills found that reportedly were Tylenol PM. And last but not least, there was the book, Not Without Peril, about hiking in the White Mountains, given to her by Billy. I have to imagine that this had something to do with her intended location. What wasn't in the car? Several bottles of the previously purchased alcohol, her debit card, credit cards, and her cell phone. Mora also was nowhere to be found. In the span of just a few minutes, she had vanished. This is where I leave you and our story for today. We'll be picking up the second part of Morris' disappearance tomorrow. I wouldn't be who I am as a person, though, if I didn't share some hashtag questions with you all about the first half of the events here. First, why was Mora crying at 1 a.m. on the Friday night, Saturday morning of her work shift? Did Mora and Fred actually go car shopping when he was in Amherst? If they didn't, why the lie? Did Mora take the $4,000 from Fred's ATM account? And is Fred just covering for her? If so, why did she steal from her father? If not, what's really going on here? What happened at the dorm party? Why have the attendees of this party been so tight-lipped over the years? And for the love of God, why did they drink sky blue malt mixed with red wine? Why the hell, after this party, did Mora drive back to Fred's hotel when her dorm was so close and within walking distance. Who was the nursing school friend Mora called just before she left campus? Why have they never come forward? 
And why did the police question this person about their relationship and interactions with Mora prior to her disappearance? Why did Mora lie about someone in her family dying? Why the hell was Billy calling Mora so much on a daily basis leading up to her disappearance? What was said in the printed out email Mora left in her packed up dorm room? Where was Mora headed if she didn't end up booking any sort of accommodation for herself? Who was it that called Mora when her cell phone pinged off the Londonderry Tower? What caused Mora to crash outside of Butch Atwood's house? Had Mora actually been drinking and driving at the time? Was Mora injured in the crash and Butch just didn't notice in the dark? Why specifically did Mora lie about calling AAA? Who was it that saw police SUV 001 and was their timing about seeing it correct? Mora had been in view of three different sets of neighbors that night. How did she vanish from the scene so quickly? And last but not least, why was Mora on Route 112 in the first place at all? Tomorrow, I'll be telling you about all what happened after Mora disappeared. The initial search, the police involvement, and the days, months, and now years after the fact. In those same years, a number of theories and strange occurrences, and even stranger potential pieces of evidence have cropped up. So don't worry, we'll be discussing those too. I do have a few business bitch things I want to take care of before we sign off. Uh, primarily, I do want to give a shout out to the first Patreons of uh, Dark as Hell, Megan Walker. She is the first ever Patreon. I need to note that. And also Just Plant. You can check out the different levels of Patreon at patreon.com slash darkashellpodcast to see the additional content and the cool bonuses that Patreons of Dark as Hell can have access to. Dark as Hell can be found on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod, all one word, and on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, which is again, all one word. The Patreon website, like I just said, is patreon.com slash darkashellpodcast. And you can reach me at Gmail at darkashellpodcast.com. Uh, nope, sorry, darkashellpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> I'll see you back here tomorrow. Ready to get dark as hell with the second part of the story about the disappearance of Maura Murray.